are listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, and tonight we're looking together at chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11, and we'll be reading verses 1 and 2. You'll find this on page 1034 of the Pew Bible. Revelation 11, verses 1 and 2. Hear the word of God. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Well, in this text, we are in the midst of the seven trumpets of judgment that was begun in chapter 8. To the seven angels who stand before God were given trumpets to sound. And God assigns them the duty of giving advance warning of his judgments. The first four trumpets, you'll remember, ushered in a series of natural disasters which affected a third part of the earth, every single one of them. The last three trumpets signal the onset of the three great woes upon mankind. And these three trumpets symbolize judgments that are inflicted during the interadvental period between his first and his second coming, the period in which we're living right now. The trumpets are sounding, and there are disasters and diseases, and there are deaths. They're the forewarning of judgment. And they should have a solemn and sobering effect on everyone who hears about them or endures them. They're meant to arouse the world's attention and awaken our repentance and evoke our gratitude and engender our humility. Specifically, this text, these two verses, is a literary interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. And the first question, I guess, to answer is simply this. What what do the temple and its courts signify? John was asked to measure the temple. Well, the outer court of the Gentiles, of course, was where the Gentiles could assemble, but they could not pass beyond. That's as far as they could go. There was an inscription on the entrance to the next court which said, whoever is caught going beyond will have himself to blame for his death, which will follow. If you're a Gentile, you don't go beyond this court. That next court is the court of the women, where the Jewish women could assemble, but go no further. The next court was the court of Israel, where the Jewish men could assemble, but they could go no further. The court of the priests was next, where the altar altar of burnt offering and the altar of incense and the holy place were situated. And the final court was the Holy of Holies, which was where only the high priest could enter only once a year. 
Now, the outer court of this temple was an addition built later by King Herod. He spent vast fortunes erecting magnificent buildings, and this was one of them, the temple, larger than any it ever had been before. And it was truly spectacular. But the outer court was never appointed by God. It enveloped the Jerusalem temple, and it was filled with people, both good and bad, milling about, doing all kinds of things. It was here that the money changers made their profits and where the merchants sold their sacrifices. It was here where the Gentiles who were considered ceremonially unclean could enter. And of course, this outer court was thronged by a mixed multitude of people who profaned the sacred ground. As then, so now, God's church is comprised of a mixture of true and false. As it was then, so it is now. And it's likely that when John wrote this, and I know there's debate on this point, but it's likely that the Jerusalem temple had been destroyed. And what John sees in his vision is not the actual temple, but a symbolic one. And that which he measures is meant to represent the people of God, the church. As Hendrickson points out, just as in Revelation 7, the church militant was described under the symbolism of Israel's earthly tribes, so here the true church on earth is symbolized by Israel's earthly sanctuary. And of course, sprinkled throughout the New Testament, we find a similar kind of symbolism, don't we? Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? You are members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So just as the temple was set apart for God and his service, so is the Christian church. And notice the apostle John is given a measuring rod with which to measure this temple in his vision. And of course, the act of measuring means to precisely calculate its dimensions. In Scripture, it's a metaphor for gaining true knowledge by careful scrutiny. You have to look very closely to measure it. Zechariah 1, thus says the Lord, I've returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. I'm looking at it with careful scrutiny. It's a prophecy of the restoration as God promises to restore the temple and its Jerusalem itself, he implies, will be rebuilt with precision and uniformity and care. When God stretches his measuring line over the city, it ensures its safety. Consider Ezekiel's vision of the glorious temple which God carefully rebuilds. The prophet Ezekiel is told to watch a man like bronze as he measures the temple with a reed. And it says in chapter 40, the length of the measuring reed in the man's hand was six long cubits, each being a cubit and a handbreadth in length. So he measured the thickness of the wall as well as the rest of the temple, the whole thing. And several chapters from 40 to 48 are devoted to giving a detailed list of measurements of that temple. And it portrays the restoration and the protection of the church, which is meant to encourage the exiles. The exact measurements signify God's plan 
Indeed, no detail is left to chance. Well, John's vision, I think, seems to draw upon this Old Testament prophecy of Ezekiel, the order to measure the temple as a metaphor for God's protective presence. He will ensure that his church is preserved and safeguarded and secure. And I want you to notice how the apostle is commanded to measure three things, the temple, the altar, and the people. First, the temple itself, which is the church. God's blueprints by which it is to be gauged. He's constantly measuring the entire church and each individual in the church. Is it built right? How faithfully does it conform to my plan? What fruit is it producing? I'm thankful for Marian's prayer request. He doesn't measure by antiquity or Catholicity. He doesn't measure by popularity or beauty or size. That's not how the Lord measures his church. That which is primary in his assessment of the church is its fidelity and its fruitfulness. I don't care how big or small it is. To Smyrna, Jesus says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. To Philadelphia, he says, I know that you have but little power, and yet you've kept my word and you have not denied my name. And the Lord assures us that he'll build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail. So first of all, he measures the temple. Second of all, he measures the altar, which appears to be a symbol for the worship of the church. Matthew Henry's right, I believe, he says that which was the place of the most solemn acts of worship may be put for worship in general, the altar. And so we see that God measures our worship. He finds that which is both acceptable and unacceptable. Hebrews 12 tells us, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Why, apostle? Because God is a consuming fire. Does our worship conform to the standard by which God measures? Is it biblical according to his word? Is it sincere from the heart? Is it fervent in zeal? Do our prayers ascend to God like a fragrant incense or are they like a stench of smoke? When we draw near, ask yourself, do we come here to exalt and proclaim and treasure the Lord Jesus Christ? Insofar as you and I worship in spirit and truth, helped by the Spirit himself, God the Father is honored. So he was told to measure the temple the church, he was told to measure the altar, its worship, and finally he's told to measure the people who represent all who are sincere in their commitment to Christ. Measure my worshipers, he says, who have certain distinctive dimensions. Measure the range of their character. Measure the height of their faith. Measure the scope of their devotion and the measure the limits of their integrity and the length of their principles and the depth of their humility. Measure it. Measure the sincerity of their love, the extent of their hope, the largeness of their heart, and the degree of their joy. Measure it, John. These things are what the indwelling spirit produces, and he's preparing a bride. 
That's what we are, Christ's bride. As Esther prepared for 12 months before going into the king, so the church is preparing throughout history before joining the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, the measurements here then signify the preservation of the church and its worship and its people. Peter says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into what? A spiritual house. And from God's perspective, the blueprints for the spiritual temple are already complete. From before the foundation of the world, God planned it according to exact measurements. Every single living stone, carefully chosen, precisely honed into shape, placed in the temple. He knew the height, the breadth, and the length of the church before everyone existed. And John's commission to take measurements is a great encouragement to us. The Lord decreed the absolute security of all the true members of the church. And this is parallel, I believe, to the ceiling described in Revelation 7 where the saints are protected. The community of faith, the worship of God, and the followers of Christ cannot be destroyed. Our standards say some churches have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. Nevertheless, it goes on to teach us, there shall always be a church on earth to worship God according to his will. But there is one more important question to answer. Why was the outer court not measured? Did you notice that? Well, of course, this was the court that Herod, Herod built into which the Gentiles could come, but no further. They were ceremonially unclean. They were not as far off as pagans who had no interest or opportunity in the temple. They were not as close as the Jews who had far greater religious privileges. The Gentiles were barred from getting any closer than this outer court. And in Herod's temple, this outer court was a vast, magnificent addition. There was no such, such outer court in the temple of Solomon or Zerubbabel. King Herod had to be extravagant. He had a taste for worldly grandeur. And as I said earlier, it was where the money changers grew rich and the merchants made their profits. And so those in the outer court symbolize ones who are identified with but not really part of the church. Identified with, not really part of the church. Isn't this what John said? Many antichrists have come. They went out from us, but they were not of us. You see, John was prohibited from measuring nominal Christianity, which is anti-Christian at heart. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. There's no need to measure a temple court that is overrun by hypocrites, is there? We need not be precise about them. There's no security for them. They're lost. Isn't this what Jesus refers to in speaking of the final day? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven... On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name 
and do many mighty works in your name, sit in the pews and preach from the pulpit and teach from the lectern in your name. And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. A very sobering text. And John says the outer court is given over, over to the nations who trample the city with their hypocrisy. And generally by the nations, the Bible means those who are not of Israel, not of God's people, those who are separated from Christ and alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. They trample for 42 months, which is a stock phrase to symbolize a period of persecution. Take, for example, Daniel's prophecy regarding the time of terrible oppression. In Daniel 7, it says, The saints shall be given into the evil king's hand for a time, times, and half a time. The equivalent of one year plus two years plus a half a year, 42 months, or 1,260 days. And of course, historically, that prediction was fulfilled when the Syrian king attacked Jerusalem. Antiochus Epiphanes tried to force the Greek language and culture and worship upon the Jews. Many Jews cooperated. Nominal faith. Others stubbornly resisted and they were martyred. Judas Maccabeus and his followers were victorious in waging guerrilla warfare. So finally, after three and a half years or 42 months, the Syrian forces withdrew. So each December, the Jews celebrate Hanukkah to commemorate the restoration right there. And John's vision shows that there will be a period of suffering and the church will appear to be defeated, a specific duration. And through it all, God will be with her to protect her from the devil and the second death. Because the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So the first thing I believe that we can draw from this is simply this truth. That the church on earth does not guarantee our salvation, but it is a means of preserving it. You know what's said in Acts chapter 2? The Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. It doesn't say those who had been saved. It doesn't say those who would be saved. It says those who are being saved. Many people today think of salvation exclusively as an instantaneous act. You've said this many times. They seem to equate a believer's salvation only with his justification. And perhaps that's due, I think, to the influence of the altar call theology. You know, walk the aisle, accept Christ, and you're saved. Once saved, always saved. But Scripture sets forth a Christian salvation as an entire process. We were saved in our justification. We're being saved in our sanctification. We will be saved in our glorification, all three. Alexander McLaren puts it this way, the Christian salvation is a process begun at conversion, carried on progressively through the life, and reaching its climax in another state. Justification is immediate. Salvation is a journey. 
Paul says in Romans 13, salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. That's an interesting way to put it. He tells the Philippians, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's a process. And there's a point when it all begins and the soul is translated from death to life. Conversion is a turn. But the turn itself is not the whole of salvation. It's the starting point, not the goal. We travel through the wilderness. We cross the Jordan. And salvation is promoted and it's preserved through the instrumentality of the church. It says in Acts 2, those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. To what were they added? The role of the church. How were they added? By the means of grace. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. And there we have a portrait of the church's heart and routine, her desire and her life. The early Christians didn't conceal their faith, though they were tempted to by persecution. That day they were added to the role, and that day they joined the church straight away according to the psalmist in 92, who says, the righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They're planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. That day, they were immediately planted in the courts of the Lord, just like you've been planted in the church. The church is God's appointed agent to nourish our souls and to prepare you and I for heaven, for death first, heaven second. We're told in our standards, the visible church is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God. Get this, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. Did you know your church believes that? God has not revealed his intention to save any sane adult apart from the gospel ministry. He emphatically declared that those who deny Jesus publicly are not saved. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Those three boys this morning, what they did has eternal consequences. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Everyone who hears the gospel is commanded to confess Christ publicly. This is done ordinarily in the context of the visible church of Christ. As Paul teaches, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So the church is the place out of which there's no ordinary possibility of salvation, or to put it in the words of John Calvin, to those whom God is a father, the church must also be a mother. So believers associate with the church. And we diligently use the means of grace. They're public means by which Christ conveys grace to his people. What a wonderful thing. It's not automatic. 
The Spirit has to make them effectual to those who use them in faith. And there are churches into which if a young plant is admitted, he's likely to starve. That's sad to say. The light of the word is dim. The temperature of faith is low. The moisture of love is all dried up. We're judgmental. Tender shoots will be deprived of nourishment and chilled by the frost. If that's the only option, they're going to need prayer and Bible study and Christian fellowship. That's for sure. Other Christians stand aloof from the church and they slowly wither. Because just as salvation is a process, so too is the opposite. Apostasy is gradual. Paul says the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Notice he said, did not perish. He didn't say they will perish. He said they are perishing by slow degrees, gradually over time. Estrangement from Christ is almost imperceptible. It's likened to drifting in Hebrews 2. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. Lack of effort, and I've experienced this. Lack of attention in spiritual things can lead to apostasy. If I didn't have the promise of God's eternal decree and covenant to give me perseverance, I'd be lost. McLaren says, no man becomes a devil all at once, and no man becomes an angel all at once. Trust yourself to Christ, and he'll lift you to himself. Turn your back upon him, and you'll settle down, 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 until you're lost forever. All of us here are in process, and we are either advancing ahead or drifting away. So let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day, the final day, the day of Christ's return. And all true worshipers to conclude in the inner court will be preserved by God's power. Because Jesus is always measuring his church, and the Lord knows those who are his. Many are on the fringes of Christianity whom the Lord does not measure. They're officially in the church, attending services, looking like disciples, yet they have no sincere interest in the gospel and no true devotion to Jesus Christ. Paul warns that in the last days, people will have the appearance of godliness but deny its power. And so I ask you, and you should ask me, If John measured our church today, how many would be left out? Would there be some surprises? Would there be many left out whom we thought would be included? Would there be many many brought in who we thought were excluded? Let me close with this. True Christians will be saved. They'll be saved. Because he who keeps them never slumbers. We're kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, and he knows you by name, and he loves you deeply, and he's profoundly interested in you. So be thankful if you have true faith and sincere repentance that his measurements are exact and his salvation is secure. Rejoice, Christian. Be glad and thankful. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.